0: There are some today within the evangelical community who want to say very little or nothing at all about sexual sin. They say that the Bible merely whispers about sexual sins, but shouts about sins of pride. And when they say this, they propose the church should take the same tact. Uh, but in proposing this strategy, these popular evangelical leaders twist Scripture, projecting a half-truth as a full truth, which makes it an untruth. Right? So keep, keep that in mind. Not every false teacher, everything they say is not false. They often will speak much truth. But when they present this half-truth as the full truth, they project an untruth. And, and what do I mean by this? Was Jesus compassionate towards those who recognized that they were sinners, especially towards women who are prostitutes that came to him? Of course. You know, there's countless examples uh, of this. Yet to project this as Jesus's only response towards sinners, and especially towards sexual sinners, is, is not accurate. To the woman at the well who had been married five times and was living with a man who was not her husband, Jesus tenderly confronted her by identifying her sins. And that's one of the reasons that she knew he was the Messiah because he told her all the secret stuff going on in her life. Jesus knew all that. Jesus tenderly confronted her by identifying her sin and and called her to believe in him as the Savior of the world. So we affirm that Jesus was definitely compassionate toward those who humbly saw themselves as sinners in light of God's holiness and God's laws, and we should take the same tact as the church. The spiritually prideful, on the other hand, such as the Pharisees and Sadducees, were often sternly rebuked by Jesus. So this too we affirm. In Luke five thirty-two, we're given the reason for this strategy, and after uh, Jesus called uh, Matthew to be one of his disciples. We read this and Levi gave a big reception for him, that is for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Notice that last phrase. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. For the self-righteous, Jesus offered harsh words of rebuke. Those were often levied at the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. For those who recognized that they were sinners, Jesus offered tender words. Uh, offered tender words of affirmation. Right? Isn't know what he did? He offered tender words of. Affirmation affirming them in their sins. No, you you know better. But if you listen to many of the big Eva, that is big evangelical pastors today, you might walk away with this impression. But again, they're taking a half truth and projecting it as the whole truth. If if you look at Luke five thirty two and read it carefully. We see that Jesus told the Pharisees and the scribes, "I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." To repentance, Jesus called sinners to repentance. He did not affirm them in their sin. He called them to repentance. Jesus' mission to call sinners to repentance is really the Father's mission. This is masterfully presented to us in Luke 15. So, may I have you open up your Bibles to Luke 15, just so you can track along with me. In Luke 15, we read of several examples of parables that Jesus told that really illustrate beautifully how the Lord works in people's lives to bring about repentance. The first parable we read about is the parable of the lost sheep. And we'll begin reading at verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on its shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. They might think, well, what does this parable mean? Jesus explains it in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Notice the emphasis on repentance that Jesus brings on there. Heaven rejoices when sinners turn to Christ and repent of their sins. Jesus is not in the business of affirming people in their sins. He is in the business of calling people to repentance. And when they repent of their sins, he saves them. Let's continue reading on. Look at the parable of the lost coin in verse 8. Or what woman, if she has, has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp? And sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Now when you think of coins, you might think of a penny and you think, oh, no big no big deal. But consider it a, a very valuable penny. If it, if it was a coin of, of pure gold that was worth thousands of dollars, you would do exactly what she is doing in this. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice for me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus tells the extended parable of the prodigal son, right, which we won't take time to go into today. But, but the whole point of that story is the fact is the father's rejoicing at the son when he prodigal son, when he repents and comes back to his father. Right? All of that to say. That God works in people's lives to call them to repentance. So it's Jesus' mission to call sinners to repentance, and this is also the Father's mission to call sinners to repentance. Remember Jesus said that I and the Father are one, that Jesus didn't teach anything, he didn't do anything, that he didn't see that he hadn't heard from his father, that his father didn't want him doing. They were unified in their mission. But we can also see that the Holy Spirit's mission extends the mission of Jesus into our lives. One of the Holy Spirit's ministries is to convict us of sin and, um, and, our, and our need of righteousness and a judgment to come. This unified mission of God is a mission of grace that calls sinners to repentance and to live lives that reflect the transforming power of God which flows through them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is encapsulated for us in Titus 2. I'll just read that. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So the first thing that we need to, uh, to establish um, is, and that we need to help people understand is that God calls sinners to repentance. God is holy, and we uh, as sinners are not. And he calls sinners to repent of sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And God's love does not affirm people in their sin. God's love confronts your sin. Mm-hmm. And you just think of the analogy that Jesus used. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician. It is those who are sick. A physician heals the sickness. Um, Jesus heals the sickness of sin. That, that's, what, that's what we're talking about. We also need to understand that this call of repentance includes a call to repent, not just of sins in general, but this morning I want to turn a particular spotlight on sexual sins. Sexual sins are not the only types of sins that God calls us to repent of, not at all. God wants us to be holy as he is holy. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, which is is why he calls us to repent. He calls us to repent of all sin. Sexual sins are not the only sins that sinners are called to repent of. Sexual sins are the first sins of the heart our first sins of the heart long before they are sins of the flesh. So in addressing sexual sins, the Bible also uh, includes the unrealized sexual lust as well as those we actually commit. The, The call to repent of sexual sins is an important part of the larger call to repent of sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Now Why this morning are we specifically addressing the call to repent from sexual sins? Well, first, as uh, Scott mentioned earlier, faithful pastors in Canada requested that we stand with them today in defying a new law in Canada that potentially criminalizes the biblical call to repent of the sexual sins of homosexuality and transgenderism. Law C-4 passed in Canada without any opposition. It went into law this past Sunday. And so uh, many faithful pastors in Canada um, chose today to make a stand for truth. And they asked uh, pastors in the United States and other places to stand with them. That law C-4 passed um, in Canada uh, bans conversion therapy for homosexuals and people who believe they are transgender now I, we don 't support what is called uh, conversion therapy in the in the therapeutic sense, uh, and i won 't take time to explain that we are not supportive of that, but we are very supportive of the fact that sinners need to repent sinners need to be converted, and that is god 's work. Uh, pastor James Coates, who you might um, remember was uh, jailed this past year for his for his uh, stand in um, just the church gathering and assistance the church gathered together. Um, he's the pastor of Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Canada. He warns that the real effect of the legis- legislation is to outlaw the preaching and teaching of biblical sexuality, to criminalize evangelism in Canada. One news commentator describes law C4 uh, this way. The language of C4, as the law is known, is so broad it could apply to almost any context. If a pastor preaches a message from the pulpit about sexuality and the authorities interpret it as trying to convince someone not to be gay or trans, they could arrest him. Same with a teacher at a Christian school or a lay minister offering church counseling even if an individual wants to leave a gay or transgender lifestyle, any Christian, be it friend or family, advising them on how to do so would be breaking the law. It's a very broad law. James Coates and other faithful pastors are preaching today on biblical sexuality in defiance of that law, and we need to uphold them in prayer. They want to be faithful to God's word so they will not be silenced by the law, be it whatever circumstances. Uh, circumstances or results come from that they simply want to teach what the scriptures teach on sexual morality so that's the first reason we're addressing this today is to stand in solidarity with them secondly we are speaking on biblical sexuality because what happens in Canada doesn't stay in Canada Canada is not that far away we're not that far removed from some of those policies um See, laws like C4 have been passed in 14 states already. Uh, at their last convention, the Democrats made advancing conversion therapy laws as a part of their key party platform. They want to, to ban these and bring these kind of things, federalize it, the uh, United States. But what we have to understand is one of the roles that the church has is to be a pillar and support of the truth. By prophetically declaring God's word and calling our nation to repentance, I'm using the term "prophetic" not in the sense of foretelling the future, but in foretelling the truth. This is this is a ministry that is similar to the Old Testament prophets of Israel and even to uh, Gentile nations that were called to repentance, such as Nineveh. John the Baptist lost his head, not strictly for the gospel's sake, but confronting the sins of a ruler. It is in this sense, the church is called to be the salt and light of the world, in Matthew 5, uh, verses 13 to 16. And so we speak the truth of God's word today as prophets calling our nation and any who listen to repentance. Thirdly, we are speaking about these things today because the issues of homosexuality and transgenderism are all around us. They, they certainly are in Canada. They certainly in our nation, but they are among us. They, this is something that, that uh, affects uh, your business, your work, um, whatever you're doing. It's all around us. The demand to affirm and celebrate the sexual sins of homosexuality and transgenderism is something that's being forced upon all of us. There's no middle ground on this issue There's no room to hide. We cannot be silent. So as we look at these issues, we want to be very practical. We want to be very compassionate toward sinners and very faithful to the scriptures. It's not just pastors who are called to stand firm on the word of God. How will you respond when your employer demands that you affirm something that God calls sin? So our stand for the truth of God is to to help encourage our Canadian brothers and sisters, to call our own nation to repentance, and to help equip you to call sinners you know to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This fight is a fight for the gospel, something that we are called to contend for. So that the big idea that I want you to walk away with is that salvation requires conversion. Salvation requires conversion. And we're going to look at several passages today to show the necessity of conversion. First, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, look at verse or chapter three with me. And and this morning, we won't be going uh, a deep dive on any one of these passages, but we're going to be looking at passages from the the standpoint of conversion. So what better place to start than in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John Three. So look with me at John 3, and we'll just kind of walk through this together, beginning at verse 1. So here I want you to see that conversion is a work of God that changes the life of everyone who truly believes in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Conversion is a work of God that leads to salvation. Look at verse 1 of John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That, that term born again means born from above. That's the process of conversion that we're talking about. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus uh, said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let me just pause there to say, Jesus is using the analogy of the wind. Can you control the wind? You can't control it whether you're born again or not. There's a famous book called Born Again, giving you instructions on how to be born again. But ultimately, what I want you to see from the Scriptures is that this is a work of God. This is something that God must do. He works in our lives. Nicodemus said to him in verse 9, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly I say to you that we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So some high-level conclusions I want you to see about conversion. Conversion means being born from above. Being born again by God, it's not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, but of the will of God. Secondly, conversion is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus repeatedly says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Right? It's not possible. Thirdly, conversion is a sovereign work of God. Look, pointed that out earlier. Uh Conversion flows through faith in Jesus Christ. We see that uh, towards the end in verses uh, 15 and 16. And lastly, I want you to see that conversion changes what you love and what you hate. Uh, Look at verses 19 and following. Jesus says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So without conversion, we we um love the darkness, hated the light, because we didn't want the light to expose our evil deeds. But verse twenty one but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, having been wrought in God, having been created in God. So conversion uh, changes what you love and what you hate. You, you you love the light and you hate the darkness you love what is good and you hate what is evil you love the truth and you hate the lie now, repentance here's what I want, what, I want, what I want to connect for you is that repentance is not ultimately a work that results in the heart of man yes there's John 3:16 that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life belief is part of that part of the work of god We'll look at another passage later that shows that even that belief is is a gift. It's really not of you. But belief is necessary for salvation. But understand that the repentance that we're talking about is not a work that you can do. Repentance is something that originates in the heart of man. True repentance flows from God's work in our lives. And so when we call people to repentance, we're not calling them to change themselves. We're not calling them to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and change themselves, something they cannot do. Uh, the scriptures reference the fact that the leopard cannot change his spots and the Ethiopian cannot change his skin. So you cannot change your heart. So the repentance that we're talking about is not a an outside-in type of turning and I just will take a moment to define repentance. Repentance means turning 180 degrees from the direction we were headed. So we were headed in the direction of sin. You stop going that direction and you go in the direction of holiness and righteousness that God calls us to go. So true repentance flows from within. It's not forced from outside. True repentance flows from a changed heart that only God can give you. And he gives that at this, at, this, at conversion So acknowledging these realities, we call each and every sinner to repentance. So conversion is a work of God that changes the life of everyone who truly believes in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. You cannot tell me that someone can experience conversion and stay the same. Well, you can tell it to me, but I won't believe it. And by the authority of God's Word, I'll tell you that you don't have an accurate understanding of what's going on. When God saves he converts. When God saves, he he brings to life things that were once dead. Your life is changed. Secondly, I want you to see that conversion is necessary because a relationship with God requires drastic change. Why is conversion necessary? Because our lives need to be drastically changed. And, And for this, I want you to turn to 1 John the book of First John chapter 1. You know, God is not okay with how we were as sinners. So if you have been born again from above, if you're a Christian today, then, then God's wrath towards your sin is appeased and satisfied through Jesus Christ. And you are his child and he loves you and pours out his love upon you. But to everyone who is not uh, uh, in uh, uh, a child of, of God, you are not in a right relationship with God, and you cannot even relate to God. You can call out to pray to God, but you cannot rightly relate to Him as God because of your sin. I want you to see this. Look at look at First John one uh, five. This is the message that we have heard from Him and announced to you. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. None. Not one ounce. Not one shadow. Not one dark closet. Nothing. So you see, because we are born as sinners, we can't relate properly to God. We can't have that relationship with God. That's why we need Christ. And and conversion is necessary in order that we might have fellowship with God. God must change us. He must change our hearts so that we can rightly relate to him. And, and I just want to point out a few of, from, from 1 John, a few passages that help us understand that. So a, a relationship with God requires that there be no darkness within us. That, that requires that the term light is used for holiness, darkness is used To speak of sinfulness. So relationship with God requires holiness. That's what we can see from 1 John one five. Look at 1 John 2.29. 1 John 2.29. We're just kind of like um, hovering over certain passages that, that speak about being born of him. There John says, if you know that he is righteous, that is God is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. So how can you tell that someone is born of God and that is they practice righteousness? Now, now here we want to be very careful to say that, that we're talking about the pattern of your life. We're not talking about sinless perfection, which the scriptures do not teach at all. So it's not that the scriptures, uh, it's not that we become uh, sinless. In fact, the book of first John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But it's the pattern of your life that we're talking about. Everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. So a relationship with God requires practicing righteousness. Again, God doesn't affirm someone in their unrighteousness. He calls them to live a life of righteousness. Look at 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, when he's talking about he cannot sin, understand he's talking about as a believer, someone born of God cannot continue in sin, right? They cannot continue in sin, meaning that their sin is, is, is just goes on and on. It doesn't mean they're always committing that sin, but their sin is unbroken by true repentance, the difference between a believer's sin and an unbeliever's sin is that a believer's sin is broken by true repentance. There are, there are periods in time where we see or are confronted by our sin. We confess our sin to our Lord and there's genuine repentance in our lives over that sin. That sin does not have domination in our lives. If any sin has domination in your life, then you are not ruled by God. Look at 1 John 4, 7. 1 John 4, 7, where we see that a relationship with God requires having a a love for one another. So a relationship with God requires holiness. A relationship with God requires practicing righteousness. A relationship with God requires an inability to to practice sin that is ongoing, and ongoing sense without repentance. And here, a relationship with God requires having love for one another. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves God is born of God and knows God. So again, we're, we're seeing here the, the, the connection between being born of God and loving others. It requires us to have love for one another. First uh, John 5, look at First John 5. We see a relationship with God requires keeping his commandments. First John 5, the first uh, four verses there. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So a relationship with God requires us. Keeping his commandments, not in a burdensome way, not not in any kind of senses to earn our salvation, because we can't do that. You know that. Right? But in the sense that once somebody is born again, the pattern of their life changes to to as to um, keep his commandments. And look at First John five eighteen. We see the relationship with God requires the Lord. <coughs> excuse me, requires the Lord keeping us holy. First John five eighteen. We know that one, no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So ultimately, the pattern of our lives and walking in holiness and righteousness isn't, isn't in our own strength. It is God's work in our lives. He protects us. He cares for us. So conversion is necessary. All this to say, First John, conversion is necessary because a relationship with God requires drastic change. God has to drastically change us in order to rightly relate uh, to us because He is holy and in our natural state, we are not. Thirdly, I want you to say that conversion is necessary because you need to be prepared for heaven in the eternal state. You need to be prepared for heaven and the eternal state. Um, ter- please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So in this chapter Paul is addressing some sinful behavior in the Corinthian church and he is um he is um telling them that they should not be taking each other to court. They should be uh, appealing to those with wisdom within the church for help and in dealing with these issues. And in, in so doing, he brings up this, the, these, uh, the very issue that we're talking about right now. And, and we see that uh, beginning of verse 9 and following. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. So first notice there that God calls us not to be deceived. Satan is working hard to deceive us. The world is working hard to deceive us. And, and at times our flesh is working hard to deceive us. God tells us that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here the kingdom of God refers to the realm of salvation, the possession of eternal life. Being a child of God, the kingdom of God will be inherited by those who are made to be co-heirs with Christ of the early of the, of the millennial reign of Christ, but ultimately in the eternal kingdom of God. And here the unrighteous refer to those who were not saved. These are not proverbial, uh, so-called carnal Christians. These are the unrighteous. These are not Christians. These are not children of God. The unrighteous are not children of God because they have not believed in faith in Jesus Christ. They may believe certain facts about him, but the unrighteous have not been converted. The unrighteous have not been born again. So who are the unrighteous? Well, Paul gives us a list. Paul, um, ultimately, God gives us descriptions. Now this isn't an exhaustive list, but it is a representative list. And we see this list beginning in verse nine. <coughs> Excuse me. The first here, and we just, we're just going to go through this list just so we understand what the Word of God is saying. The first word is the word fornicators. This, this is the word uh, pornos, uh, from where we get pornography. And this refers to a sexually immoral man. This is a general term for all types of sexual immorality. Uh, Vines Expository Dictionary notes that it is used of illicit sexual intercourse, even of adultery. It refers to any kind of sexual experience outside of God-given place for the expression of, Uh, of sex in marriage of one biological man to one biological woman. This would include um, people who view pornography as well as the people who make pornography. This term includes unmarried heterosexual activities um, as much as it includes homosexual and bisexual activities or even transgenderism. Fornicators are those who pursue the lust of the flesh, which are mentioned in uh, Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. The second word is idolaters. The word includes all those who worship anything or anything, anyone or anything besides God. This would include those who physically bow down to worship idols, but also those worshiping idols of the heart, excuse me, Idolatry is associated with fornication, it's associated with greed in Colossians 3 5, and the covetous man in Ephesians 5 5. Adulterers are those who um, are engaged in sexual activity with someone else's spouse. The scriptures often use the word in a metaphorical sense to refer to those who are unfaithful to God. <clears throat> The Spirit of God reminds us in Hebrews 13.4 that marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The fourth on the list is effeminate. This refers to someone who is soft in a literal sense, soft of the touch. It refers metaphorically to a male who submits his body to unnatural lewdness. <coughs> Excuse me. Thus, it refers to those males who take on the natural function of the woman. Next on the list is homosexuals. This refers to male homosexuals. described in, These are described in Romans 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving <clears throat> in their own persons the due penalty of their error. <coughs> Excuse me. Next on the list are thieves. You know, we don't have to do much explanation there. It's klepto. The kleptes is the Greek word those who steal. Next on the list is covetous, the covetous man. This is a person who's greedy. Um, A person who always wants more, whether that is material possessions or sensuality. They always want more. A covetous person is spoken of as an uh, idolater. The next is drunkards. A drunkard is someone who is intoxicated. It it primarily refers to intoxication from alcohol, but would also apply to those intoxicated by drugs. Revilers. Someone who is abusive in speech. Someone who is a slanderer. Then we have swindlers, someone who um, who is thieving in a subtle way, in a conniving way. They rob people. Um, you can even refer to those who extort um, things from others. So, looking at all these words, well, the big picture I want you to see is that the, the the words refer to men specifically, but this sin applies to all women as as well. Paul is not saying here that if you're guilty of one of these sins, you can't go to heaven. Um, That that you're beyond salvation. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying the very opposite. He he writes the list as a a list of identities. In other words, the words describe who you are at heart. So if these things describe you, who you are, your identity... You are not part of the kingdom of God. You can't inherit the kingdom of God. And, and I want you to notice that at least four of the ten descriptions given refer to sexual sin of one vice or another. And remember that this is this list is only representative. It's not exhaustive. It's It's representative of all sexual sins. Ones from long ago and those invented more recently. And so if one of these labels fits you, if that describes who you are, you are not a child of God. You are not saved. Do not be deceived. Our world is so confusing about this. And, and we could say not only the world, but the visible church. There are so many churches today who are affirming of, homosexual, of homosexuals and even homosexual pastors. There are churches who are even affirming of transgender pastors. All that is contrary to the word of God. They are deceiving their congregations. They are trying to deceive you as well. But do not be deceived. The word of God couldn't be clearer here. If these descriptions are who your identity is, you are not saved. And we say this compassionately and with warning, not to condemn you, but to warn you. Because as long as you're breathing, there's still time for repentance, as you might repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved be converted from these things you know, notice, notice that, that that the end of the story isn't that these people don't inter- don't inherit the kingdom of god there's 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 a there's a hallelujah at the end of this story we see that in verse 11 because if there wasn't a hallelujah this, none of us would be saved All right you'll just say from the outset you notice that only four of the sins are sexual sins and, and you could say only two of the sexual sins deal with homosexuality or transgenderism or effeminate and all that kind of stuff you throw in there. The other are heterosexual sins. So God is dealing with all of us. It is not, um, it is not appropriate that immorality be, uh, be named among God's people of any nature. It is completely inappropriate and detestable to God. Hmm? So Satan is trying to do the work of confusing people today. And that's what's going on all around us, even in our own city today. People affirm sinful lifestyles that God finds detestable. But, but again, I emphasize, that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you. Notice that. Past tense. Such were some of you. Were. Not are. Were. But what happened? Did they get their act together? No. Again, we're we're seeing the power of God at work here. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Some of the Corinthian believers were adulterers. Some of the Corinthian believers were fornicators. Some were effeminate. Some were homosexuals. But that's not who they are anymore by God's grace. They were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified by believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in him by the spirit of God to work that, the, the, the power of God to convert them. Notice it's God who washed them, God who sanctified them, God who justified them. If, if God does this in someone's life, they are a new creation and they will live a righteous life of a child of God. That doesn't mean there won't be momentary setbacks. It doesn't mean that there won't be temptations and allurements to these sins in the old ways. It, it doesn't mean that God's at, at work, that he's not at work in you. Uh, it, I should say it does mean that God is at work in you and He will not. he will not leave you in this sin. His children will not be characterized by their own sins. No one who is unrighteous. That includes fornicators, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals as well as transgenders, will be in heaven. Right? There' will be a lot of former of those in heaven, but there won't be any active right, in heaven. So please, please understand there is no Christian homosexual, <clears throat> only Christians who are formerly homosexuals. There is no Christian transgender, only Christians who are formerly transgender. There is no Christian adulterer, only Christians who were formerly adulterers. There is no Christian fornicator, only Christians who were formerly fornicators. See, see how ridiculous that kind of logic gets when you talk about adultery and fornication? right? But our world is throwing that in there. You can be a Christian homosexual or a Christian transgender. Right? You, you can't. Right? You can call yourself that, right? but it's not accurate. God cannot have fellowship with darkness. You must be made righteous to have fellowship with God. And, and as a child of God, if you fall into one of these old sins, the Lord is going to discipline you. And if he doesn't discipline you, that shows that you're an illegitimate son who is not really a child of God. And here we want to just turn your attention to Romans, Romans 10. Romans 10, verses 9 to 13. That if you confess your mouth with Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. Conversion is necessary because we need to be prepared for heaven. We need to be changed because all that that list of of evils and, and vices in and first Corinthians six, there's none of those people in heaven. We need to be changed, radically changed. And conversion is necessary because we need to be prepared for heaven. Well, fourthly, I want to point out conversion is necessary to enable you to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And this is where we're going to kind of conclude this morning. Turn to Ephesians, if you would, Ephesians chapter 2. Conversion is necessary to enable you to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. The life of the spiritually dead was characterized by lust of the flesh. That's going to be important as we go through this. So the the lust of the flesh, that's the characteristics of someone who is spiritually dead. Someone who is spiritually alive, they're going to walk by the Spirit, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Look at, look at Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were, speaking to the Ephesian Christians, he saying, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So what is Paul saying here? The, the former way of walking. Paul tells the Ephesian believers was according to the course of the world. According to the prince of the power of the air. That Satan of the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. Notice, notice how they're described. sons As sons of disobedience. This is true um, of all those who, who um, are not in Christ and it's true of the past of everyone who currently believes. We're sons of disobedience, not sons of God. Sons of disobedience. And and Paul, is surprisingly, even includes himself, saying, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Paul said that he, along with other believers, while still spiritually dead, previously lived for the lust of the flesh, indulging their bodily desires and whatever their lustful minds could, could come up with. That's, that's what dominated us. And, and they, as well as we, would have remained in a spiritually dead state if God had not acted in grace and mercy. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. God made them, and He made us alive. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, this, this is your description. God made them alive. That is, He converted them. He gave them new life. He caused them to be born again. And notice, continue in verse 5. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God converted them. He made them spiritually alive. And it's by his grace. It's through faith. It's not something they did. It's not a work. It's not through the repentance. It's through faith. That faith even is a gift to them. And he saved them completely by his grace. So he saved us. If you're in in Christ today, he saved you by his grace so that he could manifest the surpassing riches of his grace through you in the ages to come. And notice from verse 10, we see that God made them alive to walk in righteousness and good works, not to walk in the old ways. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. So that we would walk in them. With the idea of walking in them. Look at chapter 4 of Ephesians. The first six verses there. We'll see that God made us alive to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have been called. Uh, Look at verse uh, verse 1. Therefore I the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The point of that, God has called us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he gave us, that that calling is the call to salvation, worthy of Christ himself. God made made these believers and made us alive to walk no longer as unbelievers. Look at chapter four, beginning at verse seventeen. I'm going to read several passages here. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, then in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in the accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And Paul continues along those lines. God made, made makes his children alive so that we'll no longer live as unbelievers. We'll no longer walk as unbelievers. He uses the term walk as an, as an analogy for living. Look at chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2, God has made us alive to imitate him as his beloved children. Be imitators, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then building on that, you could say that God has made us alive to live holy lives so that no immorality would be named among us. Look at verse 4, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The term term, um, immorality there is the Greek term "porneia," related to what we saw earlier about, about fornicators. So understand there is to be no hint of any kind of sexual immorality among God's people. No fornication no sex before marriage, no adultery, no effeminate, no homosexuality, no transgenderism, nothing sexually immoral is to be named among you. It shames the name of Christ when Christians engage in these kinds of activities. So clearly we need to say that God calls people to repentance and faith in Him, and He changes them. It's not that these things aren't a struggle for, for believers, We have to walk on the straight and narrow. We have to flee from sin and flee to righteousness. That requires our effort, our work. But God is at work in us. You know, verse five, if you look at uh, just if I could just um, continue reading there in in verse um, verse four, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or a covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So please hear that what I'm saying is not my idea. It is God's idea. This is the authority of God. You hear my voice, but understand this is God's word. It's what he says. As a faithful ambassador, I am warning all those who are listening. These things must not characterize you. If they characterize you, you do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You are not a child of God. And in verse 6, Paul reiterates the, the warning. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Beloved, understand that the Lord wants you to live in a moral fashion that honors and glorifies Him. Um, I'm going to read from First Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4. Just to, just to drive this point home. This is, this is God's Word. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Hear that. He who rejects us is not rejecting Mark Rice. Not rejecting the Apostle Paul. Rejecting God. God calls us to live moral lives. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience who practice unrighteousness. And Christians are not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And notice, if you go back to where we were at in, um, in Ephesians 5, Ephesians chapter 5, you look at verse um, 11 of Ephesians 5. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, kind of driven that point home. But, but what is it? But instead, even expose them. Expose them. You and I are called to expose these things. Again, not in in an angry, critical, condemning sense. But in a loving, compassionate sense, just like Jesus did. To expose these things as sins. Calling people to repentance from these sins and faith in Christ. We can't just be silent here why can't we just be silent because by shining the light of of god's word on on their unrighteous deeds, the Lord can bring an awareness of sin that that may bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The kindness of the Lord brings us to repentance. The Lord warns us of these things, and we are to be His voice on these things, or also to shine a light on these things because be, um because uh, we are the salt and light of the earth. We might not like that ministry. We might not want to be that. Um, but that's part of following Christ. Is to be salt and light. Right? And remember the darkness doesn't like the light. And you know how salt feels. In any kind of wound. It's not pleasant. So understand why they react the way they react. But you're you and I are called to be salt and light. And. We're also not to be silent for the fear of whatever might come or ramifications. Uh, We just need to set our course to do what is right. And allow God to determine what consequences and ramifications there are. Right. So hear my voice. Our, 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 Our message is to be like that of Jesus Christ, compassionate towards sinners. We're not condemning sinners, but we are warning sinners that they must repent or they will not uh, enter the kingdom of heaven. What can we say in conclusion? Conversion is a work of God that changes the life of everyone who truly believes in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Conversion is necessary because a relationship with God requires drastic change. Conversion is necessary because you and I need to be prepared for heaven and the eternal state. And conversion is necessary to enable us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ so that we don't pursue the lust of the flesh but pursue a high calling of walking in a worthy manner to, um, of, that's in, a, in, worthy in accordance with Christ. So whether the government allows the preaching of the gospel or outlaws it, we must proclaim the necessity of conversion through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from sins whether our employers allow the preaching of the gospel or outlaws it, we must proclaim the necessity of conversion uh, through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sins. And even the larger church today has lost an appetite for this. So we have to say that whether, whether other professing Christians allow the preaching of the gospel or whether they try to shame us into silence, we cannot be silent. We must proclaim the necessity of conversion through faith in Jesus Christ and the repentance of sins. In closing, I want to read Second Timothy three, Second <coughs> Timothy 3, verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we just come to you with Lord, a desire to do what is right. Because you have placed that desire within us. Each person that's here this morning is here because you're at work in their lives. And I just ask, Lord, that you would help us to rightly understand and receive your word and to submit to your word, Lord, that that you would be glorified in our lives. Some this morning, Lord, might need to still experience conversion. And we just pray that you would work in their lives, calling to faith and trust in you, Lord, for those who have already experienced conversion, I just pray, Lord, you help us to walk the straight and narrow, to flee from immorality, and to live lives that honor and glorify you. Please help us, Lord God, to, to do your work and your way for your glory and honor. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.